I'm going to ask you this morning to open your Bibles to Revelations chapter 21. Revelations chapter 21. If anybody needs a Bible, we have Bibles up here, so if anyone needs a Bible, just raise your hand. And we were going through last week verses 1 through uh, 5, uh, and today we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 8, plus we'll be going all over the scriptures. You know, heaven has been the joy. We've been looking at heaven, and heaven has been the joy and longing of many a believer's heart. As a matter of fact, one of the best things about this study we've done in the last three weeks has been to look at heaven and just to see the glory of heaven. Doesn't it make you a little homesick? I know it does for me. It definitely does for me, right? To be with Christ unhindered, unbroken fellowship with God, to worship before the throne of God that we saw there in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5. It's just amazing. That's the longing of every born-again believer in Christ. And it's been that way since the days of old. The Bible tells us that Abraham looked for a city whose foundation and whose architect was God himself. And, um, and the purpose for starting this was precisely, it was intended, at least my intent was, to begin to take a look at these things and to give us a yearning. You know, it's critical at times. You have to, you must as a believer, take your eyes off this world and look to the next world because that's our final destination. Matter of fact, the title of this sermon and last week's sermon was the, the Final Destination for the Believer in Jesus Christ. You know, um, many great Christians had many great thoughts of, of, of heaven. Um, one of them was as the hour of his death was approaching for the former reform of Philip Melanchthon. The lectures at the university were were interrupted and the whole body of students were invited to join in prayer. And Melanchthon, on being asked by one of them, is there anything he desired? He replied simply, nothing but heaven. In December of 1899, D.L. Moody was on his deathbed. And when he was quoted as saying, Earth recedes, and heaven opens before me. This is my triumph. This is my coronation day. And I have been looking forward to it for years. Several days later, D.L. Moody would just quietly slip into the gates of heaven. I think of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 8, after he says, I fought the good fight, I finished the, uh, I've kept the course, I've kept the faith, he says this, Henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who love his appearing. To all who love his appearing. That's been the story. Today we're going to conclude our study into heaven by looking at the new heaven and the new earth, the final destination for believers in Christ. So if you're in Revelations 21, just for context, I'm going to pick up from verse 1 and we'll read through verse 8. And it reads as follows, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. Boy, if you don't have that underlined in your Bible, underline it. That's the future. That's the final destination. God will dwell. God will tabernacle. He will pitch his tent among us. I keep saying this through every study. Unhindered, unveiled access to God. That blows my mind. 
And notice what else it says, verse 4. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall no longer be any death. And there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Praise God for that, right? He's going to wipe away every tear. There's going to be no death, no mourning, none of those things that cause constant pain and constant consternation here in this life. Verse 5, And he who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And now to our text for today, verse 6 through 8. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the immoral persons, the sorcerers and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. John in seeing this vision of the new Jerusalem descending from heaven and hearing the voice saying, it is done. It is done. All things have culminated. History is complete. Every story written about this earth and the people of this earth is done. And guess what? All things went exactly the way God said they would. All the redeemed of the earth are saved. And here's a rejoiceful thing. He didn't miss one. Every name that was written in the Lamb's book of life was accounted for, just as it says in Ephesians. It was Him who wrote those names before time. You know, so many times we can get lost in the idea that, you know, that History is moving and and God is reacting. But that's not so. The Bible is very clear with this. He causes the rising of kings and He causes the the taking down of kingdoms. We're at a state in our nation's history that I think is a low point right now. We We are probably at the lowest influence we have on the worldwide scene. I'm not getting political. I'm just telling you the truth. We probably has, have the lowest level of respect that we've ever had as a nation, right? And our influence in the world scene is diminishing. While we're seeing Russia, while we're seeing China, while we're seeing North Korea pose major, major threats. Now, there's a tendency for us to think, oh my goodness, if only we had this guy in office, if only we had... Hey, no. God causes. He is sovereign. He sits on the throne. Remember what Nebuchadnezzar said in Daniel chapter 4 when his reason returned to him? He said, I blessed and thanked the Most High. And I said, who is like thee? Who does among the hosts of, uh, uh, the hosts of heaven as he pleases? And the inhabitants of earth. And no one can say to you, what hast thou done? And conversely, No one could ward off your hand. Nobody could stop you, God, from doing. Even Job, in the midst of his calamity, looked up and recognized that it is God. God who is the giver of life. God who is the giver of death. God is in control of all things. God knows. As a matter of fact, in Job 23.10, what does he say? He knows the path that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth pure as gold. Job would go on to say, Look, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that I shall see Him in my flesh. This world is heading exactly where God has intended it to go. And the narrative for us as a Western culture, and the narrative for us as Americans, may not be what we envisioned it to be. But don't forget the fact that God is God. God has appointed other people to suffer. I think of the poor Ukrainian Christians right now in the Ukraine. And I've received so many letters through other people from Ukrainian pastors who say, we're staying. 
We're not leaving. We're going to minister to the hungry. We're going to minister to the poor. We're going to minister. What are they going to minister? They're going to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what they're going to minister. Yeah, they're going to have food. Yeah, they're going to try and get them clothing. Yeah, they're going to try to love on them. Many are hunkered down in basements with unbelievers who have nowhere to go. Some of the Ukrainian pastors said, we are prepared to minister to the Russian soldiers who invade and come and take us captive, and we're going to share the gospel with them. And you know what that means, right? For the most part, it's going to mean their life. You know, there's, there's no room for Christians in a totalitarian, atheistic society. And wake up, because we're headed in that direction. There's no room for Christians. Right? And even though we see those things happening, God is still indeed on the throne. Listen, we're talking about our final destination being heaven. So if, 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 if some of us were chosen by God to suffer for the sake of the gospel, and that culminates with our life, what we are reading today is our reward. How does that stink? It is pivotal, listen, it is pivotal in troubled times for believers to fix their hope on Christ, to fix their hope on eternity, to fix their hope on something that is imperishable and cannot be taken away. Which is why we are looking at the Word of God. I don't want to read a book of somebody who said they went to heaven and they journeyed into the light and they saw, you know, I mean, there are crazy things if you look at the literature in Christian bookstores that are extra-biblical. They add to the Word of God. Weird stuff. I want to know what the Word of God says. I want to know what the truth says. That's why we've been doing this and we've been engaged in this study. So here in verse 6, he said to me, it is done. It's finished. It's culminated. God's plan of redemption is complete. It is done. And notice how he identifies himself. I am the Alpha and I am the Omega. The Omega. A, Alpha. Z, Omega. First and last letters of the Greek alphabet. He identifies himself there. I am to signify that he is the eternal preexistent one. This is how Jesus revealed himself, by the way, at the beginning of this. Turn over in your Bibles to Revelations 1, 8. And Jesus is, is walking among the golden lampstands. He identifies himself. How? I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Notice that everything culminates in Him. Everything culminates in Him. And not only does He do that, but He says, I'm the beginning and the end. Right? The beginning of all things, creation. The consummation of all things. Christ is the beginning of all things. And we find Jesus here at the end, the consummator of history. How did Paul identify Jesus in Colossians? All things were created by Him, and all things were created for Him, and nothing was created that wasn't created by Him. He's the consummator. Aren't you glad that you worship the consummator of all things, of history, of everything? He is the consummator. He says here, And I will give to the one who thirsts from the springs of the water of life without cost. And I love that expression. The water of life. True life. Eternal life. Both physical and and spiritual. Why? Because as a believer, he who believes in me, though he die, yet he live. Jesus told Martha, did he not? The believer never dies. 
Or we close our eyes and people come to our wake and they see a, a cold, stiff body in there. But that's not us. And even though they're going to put that body in the ground, we know that one day the dead in Christ are going to rise first. Just think about it. People who have been dead millenniums to which there are no longer any remains. Their bodies have decomposed and disintegrated into the dust of history. And yet the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we know, we looked at how we're going to get resurrected bodies, perfect bodies, bodies full of hair, right? We know we're doing that, right? They're going to rise first. And in that celestial kingdom, we will be in physical form, perfect, fellowshipping with one another. But here he mentions, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life. And this is the water of life that the prophets and the apostles wrote about. It's the water of life that Jesus offered. This water is eternal life, salvation offered only through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, of this water the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 55.1, Ho, everyone who's thirst, come to the waters. And you have you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the dialogue with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4? In John 4.10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked Him, and what would he have given you? He would have given you living water, eternal life. He goes on to tell it, but whoever drinks of this water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. A well of water springing up to eternal life. The water of life proceeds from Jesus Christ. It is He who is able to offer it. He is offering it to you today. If you are outside of Christ, if you have never repented of your sins, if you never turned from your sins and turned to Christ, the offer today is for you to come to the springs of water to ask Christ for that living water and He will give you springs of water that will lead you to eternal life. Turn in your Bibles over to Revelation 7. Verses 16 and 17. What it says of this water of life. Revelation 7, verses 16 and 17. It reads as follows, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. By the way, you ever think about it? What did Jesus say? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The water of life satisfies that thirst. They're not going to thirst anymore. Christ satisfies that thirst, that hunger for God and for righteousness. But Revelation 16 says, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun beat down on them, nor any heat, for the Lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd. And what shall the Lamb do? And shall guide them to the springs of the water of life, and God shall wipe away every tear from their eye. There it goes again. He shall wipe away every tear. You know, the theme of this message today is the final de destination of the believer in Christ. And we're seeing that there is going to be a new heaven, there's going to be a new earth. But listen carefully to this because I want to be crystal clear. This is the final destination of the believer in Jesus Christ. 
You know, I've been very careful with my words recently. You know, in, 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 our, in our culture today, words have changed. Their meanings have changed. One of the most devastating changes has become the word evangelical. You mention if somebody say, oh, you're an evangelical Christian, they think you're a member of the Republican Party. Right? Evangelical doesn't mean what it used to mean. It used to mean a believer in Jesus Christ who goes forth and shares their faith in Christ. Now it's taken on another connotation. But you know what else? You know what word has also taken on a new definition? The word Christian. Christian is anybody who's not a Jew, a Muslim, or a Hindu, or anything else. I'm a Christian. And there's a problem with that because when you share the gospel of Jesus Christ and you say, are you a Christian? Many people right away are going to come out and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. That's why when you read some of these surveys on, on the state of the church and they say 50% do, no, do not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and over 60% do not be, uh, believe that there's alternative ways to heaven apart from Christ, these are self-identified Christians. People who say, I'm not, you know, are you born again? Well, I don't know if I have to be born again. Is the Bible the authority? Is it the Word of God? Well, no, I don't think it is. Which is why I always try to stress the term believer in Christ. The believer in Christ is the one who has come to Christ in repentance and faith and has entrusted themselves strictly and solely to the finished work of Christ on the cross. Period. They've been born again. They have been made new. They have been regenerated. They have come to faith in Christ. They hunger and thirst for Christ. They desire Christ. They yearn for Christ. They think about heaven. They're burdened for the lost. They're filled with the love of Christ. They're okay going to church. They're not indifferent to the things of God. That's the believer. That's the believer we see in the Scripture. I'll challenge anybody. Listen, I'll sign my house over to you if you could show me in the Bible through the Word of God that it's okay to be indifferent to God. It's okay to ignore God. It's okay not to pray. It's okay not to study the Word of God. It's okay just to be in your little enclave and, and, and say, well, I'm a Christian and I'm redeemed and I'm going to heaven. Well, I guess Peter, Paul, James, and all the other martyrs weren't as smart as you. When you look in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, what do you see? You see men who stood for the faith in God and paid the ultimate penalty. And so that's why I say to you, anybody who might be listening, maybe you identify as a Christian, but does your life match up with the Word of God? Does your commitment match your confession? Many people can say, I'm a Christian, but does their life commitment match that confession? And so the water of life is offered to all who call out to Christ in repentance and faith and turn from their sins. There's an old hymn that says, Nothing, nothing to thy cross I bring. Only to thy cross I cling. And I'll tell you what, come to Christ. Don't put it off. Come to Christ. The Bible says today is the appointed day of salvation. Today when you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Come to Christ. Why would you take a risk? Why would you trust in something that to yourself is not testifying of the new birth? Look at verse 7. Verse 7 reads, He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Good Lord. More precious words I don't think have ever been penned. He who overcomes. These are the words of the Lord. He who is the one who overcomes. Who are the overcomers? The logical question, what are they overcoming? Overcome what? 
Well, that word means properly to conquer. That's what it means. It means to conquer, to carry off in victory, to become victorious is that word, to overcome. I like the way the Amplified Bible says it. The Amplified Bible says, he who overcomes, and in parentheses, it adds comments. It says, the world by adhering faithfully to Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, and then it continues, will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The ones who overcome are the ones who've overcome, who have conquered sin and death. They overcame not because of a strength that is innate inside of them, not because of their own discipline and self-determination they overcome, but it is faithfulness in Jesus Christ that gave them the strength to overcome this life with all of its sufferings and temptations. This ability to overcome this life, this faithfulness, is brought about by the new birth. How else can you overcome sin? How else can you overcome the grave? It's only brought about by the new birth, by coming to faith in Jesus Christ. In, evident, in other words, it is evidence of being born again. Of being saved. It is a gift of God. The Apostle John, turn over in your Bible to 1 John 4. Verse 4. I want to show you something here. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Notice what John the Apostle, who by the way wrote, is, is, is recording this vision, says this. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We like to quote that a lot, right? We tell our brothers and sisters going through a rough time, hey, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. By the way, let me, let me just give a word of admonition. Be very careful with Scripture. Please don't be flippant with Scripture. Don't just chuck out verses here and there, you know, because you've got to say something. Make sure when you're throwing out a verse, you understand the context of that verse and how it would apply to the person you're sharing it with. That's pivotal. Because, you know, today, um, people are like six shooters with the Word of God. Boom, 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 here goes a word. I, here, here's a verse, here's a verse. And 90% of them are out of, out of context. But here in 1 John... If you look at verse 1, it'll give you the content. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Why? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. But this you know that, it, that the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now John was contending against Gnosticism. And I don't have time to go into a deep dive in Gnosticism, but Gnosticism was a belief that in order to know God, that, that all matter was evil, it's only spirit to know God, you have to have a higher transcendent experience. God couldn't have been flesh. Jesus could not have been a man if he was God. That was a principal tenet of, of Gnosticism. Why? Because matter is evil. And God is in here. So Christ became a man. He became matter. So they denied that Jesus Christ was indeed in the flesh. And in verse 3, he says, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. There he is. It's a, there's the, the attack against Gnosticism. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard that is coming and now is in the world. Now he addresses the church in verse 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you. In other words, you've overcome this argument. You've overcome. They're holding. They're holding fast. How are they holding? They're holding because greater is he that is in you. It's God in them, giving them the ability to overcome. Look at verse 6. 
We are from God. He knows uh, he who knows God listens to us. He who is not of God does not listen. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of ever error. Turn over to chapter 5 of 1 John. Look at verses 3 and 4. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God, notice this, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. I want to make a comment to that word, our faith. It doesn't mean a personal type of faith. In other words, I have faith in my Corbin. That's not what it's saying. Our faith is the faith that was given to us at the new birth. It is a gift from God. That not of yourselves. That's what the, John is writing here. What overcomes the world is our faith, our being born again. That's what overcomes the world. So go back, if you would, back to Revelations chapter 21. As a matter of fact, if you go down a little further, verse 11. Um, I'm sorry, Revelations 12. I got dyslectic for a moment. Roma, uh, I was going to say Romanations. Turn to the book of Romanations. Revelations chapter 12. Just a little more on this word, how they overcame. Verse 11. Speaking of now the martyrs that are before the throne of God. They write this, and they overcame Him. Now here's how they overcame. These were the martyrs, the ones who were beheaded. They overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb. There it is. Power of God in salvation. They overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb. And what else? Because of the word of their testimony. You see that the blood of the Lamb gave them the faith. The faith was manifested in their testimony. They did not deny. As a matter of fact, he goes further to say, they did not love their life even to death. The blood of the Lamb, regeneration, produce faith, is given faith inside the believer. The believer holds to that faith. God works in, God works through, so that the believer does not deny the Lord. Saving faith overcomes every aspect of the world. It overcomes our fallen sinful condition. It overcomes our past, right? If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. All the old things have passed away and everything becomes new. It overcomes physical illness. It overcomes the corruption of this world. It overcomes fear, anxiety, separation, and death. Faith overcomes and brings forth eternal life and is given to the believer in Christ by God and His grace. And it's God's grace that gives the believer in Christ the ability to overcome the world. Even though we feel at times we are struggling. Even though we feel at times we are failing. The true believer in Christ will persevere in faith to the end. He will persevere in the end. Faith overcomes and brings forth eternal life and is given to the believer by Christ. It is God's grace that gives believers the ability to overcome the world. And me personally, I have always defined grace. Right? You always hear grace. What is grace? A merited favor. But that's not the full definition of grace. That's not. Not my definition. It's not the full definition of grace. I like to say that grace is the declaration and the demonstration of God's redeeming love and His enablement, His power for living. It is the declaration. I have been saved. I have followed Jesus. 
I confess Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. But it is not merely a creed. It is not merely a declaration. That grace also is demonstrated in the believer by God giving the believer the power for living. Right? Remember Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1.16, for it is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel contains that. And when we are born again, we're born again of seed that is not corruptible. We're born again by faith. That's why greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Tuesday night, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. I think it's verse 13. He says, Paul says, For it is God in you to work and to will. Notice that. To work and to will for His good pleasure. So here we see how we become the overcomers. Paul in Romans 8.37, you can turn there. Romans 8.37 Now, I know I'm spending a lot of time on this, but I don't want anybody walking out here going, I'm more than an overcomer through him who loves us so. I'm, I'm more than a conqueror through him who loves us so, not knowing what it is we are conquering. In Romans 8.37, Paul makes this statement. Now, what happened before? Paul, you know, if you were with us Tuesday night for Romans 8, Romans 8 is the high watermark of the New Testament. Perhaps the greatest chapter, it's hard to say, it's all God's Word, but from reading it, it is the high watermark of the New Testament, right? And, and, and you know, if you pick it up for context in verse 31, what shall we say then for these things? If God is for us, who shall be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge? Notice where Paul's going. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all the day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But look at verse 37. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us so. We conquer all those things. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? There's nobody. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? There's nothing. Where can we go outside the love of Christ? There's no place we can go. If we are in Christ, we are in Christ. And if we are in Christ, then we conquer because of Him who loved us so. Praise God, i got to catch my breath. Listen, the believer can only conquer because of Christ. It is why, listen, this is why, I, I want to be crystal clear with this. It is why I speak so much on the importance of knowing if you are in Christ. I, I really want to emphasize that. If that grace is not evident in your life, if the enablement, the powerful living is not evident in your life, it doesn't mean you don't sin, it doesn't mean you don't suffer, it doesn't mean you don't have trials. That kind of Christianity is a curse. The people who are spewing that venomous Christianity, telling people that you're going to be you know, fat, dumb, and happy, that's not biblical Christianity. I can't say that enough. But it's the reason why in every message, the challenge goes out and says, are you in Christ? Is this manifest in you? Do you love Christ this way? And we're going to keep on doing it. Because i got to give an account to the Lord. And, and some people may feel like, oh my goodness, you know, Mark is always preaching the same thing, you know, preaching salvation. Would you rather I preach, not preach salvation? Would you rather that I coddle you 
and say, you're perfect the way you are, man. Jesus loves you the way you are, man. No, we got to preach the Word. And we got to be bold with the Word. When I was at Liberty University of, uh, last month, you know, I said to them, I said, you know, I was, I was giving them a little bit about my history. I said, well, you know, my granddad was a pastor. My father was a pastor. I'm a pastor. So I'm third generation. You're probably thinking, oh, that probably makes sense, right? You know, father, granddad, that just makes logical sense you'd be a preacher. And I told them, I said, man, nothing could be further from the truth because I ran so far and so fast into sin you wouldn't believe it. Make your head spin. I said, but I'm going to tell you something. I'm a gospel preacher. And you might be saying, well, what's the difference between a preacher and a, and a gospel preacher? And the difference is this. Some preachers go out there and they tell you how to be a good businessman, how to be a good husband, how to, you know, how to be a good citizen, all this other different stuff. Eh, that could be tough. But I go out there and I preach the gospel. And every message that I'll preach, you'll always hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lest there be someone there who is unsaved, not heard the message, and they would come to faith and repentance in Christ. And that's why we do this here. Let's go back to Revelation 21. Revelations 21, verse 8. It reads as follows. But for the cowardly, the unbelieving, and the abominable, for the murderers, the immoral persons, the sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their part will be in the lake of fire, the, the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now up until this point, which is really interesting, up until this point, John is receiving that spoken word of the immeasurable blessings that are in store for the believers in Christ. The believers in Christ will dwell in the new heaven and the new earth. God will dwell among them. God will wipe away every tear. We've heard this. No mourning, no more death, no more illness. Believers will be physically resurrected from the dead in resurrected bodies. And best of all, believers will have unhindered fellowship with God. That should be the triple amen, amen, amen. So let it be, Lord Jesus. Amen. amen. But now the vision deals with those who have rejected Christ. The unbelievers. And in doing so, John records eight key words. A combination of verbs, nouns, and adjectives that categorize those who reject Christ. He says, but for the cowardly. And properly, these are people that have no moral gumption. These are people who will deny. These are people who will reject that don't have the ability to stand for righteousness. He says, but for the cowardly and, and unbelieving. Unbelieving, the term here is those without faith. What faith? The faith of God that has been given as a gift to the believers. They are unpersuaded. They are not convinced. And by the way, you'll notice that if somebody is not convinced of something they believe, they will not die for that belief. They will not stand for that belief. So he deals with the cowardly. He deals with the unbelieving. And then he says, and the abominable. It's a strong word in the Greek here. The abominable. Those, it says, properly stink. They're foul. They're morally foul. That's what it implies. It doesn't imply that they have an odor. It implies or it defines a person who is morally corrupt. Moral, somebody who is so morally corrupt, they're aberrant. They stink. Morally. Not a good picture of the unbeliever, right? So he goes on to say, for the abominable, the murderers, the immoral persons. And murderers, I think you can figure out, right? The people that have hatred and venom inside their hearts. The immoral. Here's an interesting word. The Greek word is pornos. Do the rest. Where we get our word pornography. It originally referred to male prostitutes. 
male prostitutes of the day who would do significantly immoral acts with other people. Significantly. They're called immoral. And it applies to all levels of sexual immorality. Here's another interesting word. And sorcerers. Here's an interesting word. Greek word, pharmakios. What English word does that sound like? Pharmaceutical, pharmacies. It means those that are enchanted with drugs. Check that out. Those that are enchanted with drugs. Why? Because in the pagan societies, they would use drugs, alcohol, and other different substances to bring them what they thought was into a more enlightened state with God. In pagan religion, it was always accompanied by excessive drinking or the use of drugs to take them out of their flesh and make them known to the gods. There's a reason why alcohol at the turn of the 20th century was called what? Spirits. Spirits. Right? Because people would get drunk and they would do things they didn't do. Well, in pagan culture, it was part of ritual pagan worship. So here the Word of God says to the sorcerers, to the ones that are enchanted with drugs. And let me tell you, there's a lot of people that are sorcerers in this day and age. All the stuff you hear about legalized marijuana and leave that. Don't buy the hype. He goes on to say, idolaters. Well, the definition is an image worshiper. Someone who worships an image. But you know, there's many images, don't you know? You can, you can buy a brand new car and that could become your idol. You may be climbing the ladder of success and getting to the top may be your idol. You may look at your bank account and put all your faith and trust. You might, I can't, but you might put all your faith and trust in your bank account and go, there it is, I'm safe, I'm good, I'm okay. You could love money. You could worship things. And let me tell you something. In a materialistic, consumeristic, coveted type of society that we live in America where we are being blasted every minute with commercials, whether you're on TV, whether you're online, whether you're on the radio, it is incessant. Our culture's demand is you need more. And in order to get more, go into debt, go deeper and deeper into debt. So the idolaters are those that are image worshipers. And lastly, he says, all liars. And that just means the deceitful person. A person who opens up their mouths and falsehoods proceed out. It doesn't just mean the person who just tells you a lie, but there are people that stand in pulpits that all they do is lie. Politicians of all parties who get up and just tell you what you want to hear knowing full well they're not going to fulfill that word. What happens to those that are outside of Christ? These are the characteristic of those that are out of Christ. This list is not intended to be exhaustive. This list is intended to give you a sample set of the unbeliever. What happens to the unbeliever? Because they have rejected Christ as the only means of salvation for their souls. You notice here in Revelation, it doesn't say there's multiple paths. There's multiple paths. You know, the good person and, and, and this one. No, you notice none of that is being mentioned. These are the ones that have rejected salvation. And Scripture is crystal clear. And all liars, 
Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There's no joy in saying that. Any preacher who's worth anything doesn't take joy in beating people and screaming fire and brimstone. But what kind of man would stand in a pulpit to proclaim gospel truth and not warn of the wrath of God that is to come? Which is why we beg people to be saved. Be saved. Come to Christ. And I say that not because I want to rattle you. It's not for a sensational effect. I say it for one reason, because it is true. And we have to rightly divide the Word of God. If I ended there and I didn't put the lake of fire, I wouldn't be expositing to you the Word of God. I would be holding back. But that's why I'll always beg, wherever I go, wherever I preach, men and women to come to Christ. Because eternity depends on it. So in closing, as we look over the past few weeks, we've looked at heaven. What it will be like. What we will be like in heaven. What is the final destination for believers in Christ? We have searched the Scriptures. We have defined heaven. We have looked at what is required to get into heaven. We've looked at what our resurrected bodies will look like. We've looked and saw will we have memory in heaven. We have seen our final destination, the new heaven and the new earth. And we've seen those who will dwell in the new heaven and the new earth and those who will not. Listen, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that the Lord is coming. You know the most amazing thing? Even unbelieving people on TV and in the media are seeing something is fundamentally wrong with the way this world is headed. And I believe that the times around us are testifying that the culmination of the age is rapidly approaching. I will not dare say when. I don't need to know when, but it is approaching. And with that said, everything boils down to what have each and every one of us done with Christ, with the message of the gospel. Listen, there are no makeups, no course corrections once this life is over. Is it C.T. Studd, I think, has that famous poem which ends with only one life so soon it will pass. Only what's done for Christ shall last. Even our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 7, 21 said, Hey, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But who? But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Our best intentions will not be enough. And by the way, indifference to God, that goes noticed. Not by me, by God. Read the Old Testament. He'll tell you about what indifference is. Having a half heart of worship. He'd rather you have no heart of worship than have a half heart of worship. Hebrews 6.11 says this, 11 and 12. He says, and we desire, this is the writer of Hebrews, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope when? Until the end. We want to realize that hope until the end. Christian life doesn't end the day somebody repents and gets saved. It's till the end. We hope until the end. And he continues to write that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Hebrews 2.3, I, 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 I can't tell you how many times I say this. If we neglect Christ, then how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? I want to end this with the words of our Scripture reading this morning. 
Revelations 22, and I'm going to read from verses 10 to 17. Revelations 22, 10 to 17. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let no one who does wrong still do wrong. And let the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And let the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. Now notice these words. To render to every man according to what he has done. Here he goes again, just to make sure everybody understands who's saying this. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the gates into the city. Praise God. Outside are the dogs. Here they go. The sorcerers and the immoral persons, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Church, is Jesus coming quickly? Yes. yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, I am, in honesty, I am left speechless. My heart goes back to verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the gates into the city. And he who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Oh, God. May that be the desire of our heart. Come, Lord Jesus. We yearn for you, oh, God. We cry for you, oh, God. We desire you, O oh God. Yes, come, Lord Jesus, and save us that we would be that kingdom of priests to our God. Save us, Lord, that we would have that unhindered, unveiled fellowship. Save us, Lord, that we would see Christ. We would glorify you. And Father, if there be any here who know not that faith, who have trifled with the gospel and trifled with the grace offered by our Lord Jesus Christ, that right at this moment they would cry out to you and say, Have mercy upon me, O God. Save me from my sin." that they would come to faith and entrust themselves to the only one who could wash their robes, for the only one who could make them new.
That they, they would deal a death blow to indifference, O oh God, and religiosity and come into a relationship with You, Lord. Father, we thank You and praise You. And we give You all the glory and we hasten for the day, Lord, when with the saints that have gone before us, we too shall stand before the throne of God and cry, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive glory, honor, and power. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.